All right. If the riff raff and back can quiet down now. <laughs> We're looking tonight at Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, <clears throat> where we read A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, let's thank you for tonight, for a place to come to be with my brothers and sisters, to hear your word, to discuss your word together, Lord, to dive in and, and want to learn what you have to tell us, God. So just work tonight by your spirit, Lord. Give us eyes to see your goodness in your word and help our hearts to be open to receiving, Lord, what you would have us, your church, understand from this. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, we discussed the command that God gave regarding the two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Today, we're going to back up a little bit to cover those verses we skipped in the middle of that about the, river, the rivers that flowed out of the garden. And this is an aspect of Eden that is easy to just skip past without thinking of the implications and without thinking of how the theme carries through the whole Bible. Because, yes, this is real history. There was a real garden, and there were little rivers that flowed out of it. But you think of all the details the Bible leaves out of anything that it covers in history. There's a reason for the things that it includes. And here, we're told that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So I want to notice three things here. First, we're told that a river flowed out of Eden into the garden. It flowed into water the garden. A river flowed from outside the garden into the garden, yet the river still came from Eden. So this shows us the garden was just a specific part of Eden. Because there are some that will make no distinction between Eden and the Garden of Eden. But if you remember what we saw a few weeks ago, that creation was a temple, and God's presence was in the garden, then we understand Eden outside of the garden is the holy place. It is still holy ground, just not the holy of holies. We should also remember what we saw earlier in this chapter, that the whole land of Eden is the land that God gave to Adam to dwell in. And this is a pointer forward to the promised land that God gives to Israel. It's a pointer forward to the church as we spread spiritually over the land that God has given to us, which is the whole earth. And it points us ultimately to the new heaven and the new earth, when the entire earth will be subdued for the glory of God. But this also means that while Adam and Eve, as we'll see in chapter 3, they are evicted from God's presence in the garden, they're actually still in Eden. And we're going to see the significance of that when we get to chapter 4. Second, let's talk about the name Eden. It is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word Eden, which is used here. So there's a land of Eden within which is the Garden of Eden, and the word Eden outside of the name of the physical place is a word that means delight, joy, pleasure, luxury, or even paradise. It's actually the word used in 2 Samuel, where we read of David's lament over Saul and Jonathan, where he says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, 
who put ornaments of gold on, on your apparel. This clothed you luxuriously says literally in the Hebrew, it says Saul clothed them with Edens. In its verb form, we find the word in places like Nehemiah 9. The Levites pray after Israel's corporate confession of sin, and we speak of all God had originally given Israel. <clears throat> and we read, and they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possessions of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. This delighted here, this delighted themselves in your goodness, it says literally, they eatened themselves in your goodness. For our purposes, I want to point out one other passage where this word is used. And that's in Psalm 36, where we read, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David in the psalm is bringing to mind the sin of Adam and Eve and the resulting depravity of mankind. But he also speaks here of God's faithful, saving love, that hesed love spoken of so much in the Old Testament. And David frames this in Edenic terms. He references the original creation, speaking of the lowest and highest heavens of the great deep of the provision for man and beast at the beginning. He speaks of the mountain of God and the river of God's delights and the fountain of life God provides. It says, literally, God gave them to drink from the river of his delights or the river of his Edens. And, and the point David makes here is that this love of God and the river of delights and the fountain of life, when David wrote this, was still available to those who knew God and his righteousness. It still is available to those who know God and his righteousness. And that brings me to the third thing we want to notice here. We considered some of this briefly when we spoke about the springs that watered the ground before there was rain. See, the, the book of Genesis in these first two chapters is really hammering home a single point. Everything is from God. He created everything. He sustains everything. And the waters show us that this life comes from God and that life continues through God. That's what we're seeing here. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there, in the garden, it divided and became four rivers. When this river gets to Eden, to the land of delight, of the joy of paradise, and then to the place of God's presence on earth in the garden, it divides and becomes four rivers. Nope, the river flowed to the garden to water the garden. It was the life-giving water that would make Adam's command to work the garden possible. But that life didn't end in the garden. No, that, that life multiplied. In the garden where God was, one river became four rivers. And this shows us how from God's presence flows the living water to all the world. It divides in the garden, the Holy of Holies, and is split off to the four corners of the earth, representing the whole world. And remember, it was Adam and Eve's mandate to start in the garden, the place of God's presence, and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God that his glory might spread over the earth. 
So what we see here is that God has already gone before them, as we might say. He has provided the means of life for the whole world in these rivers. Now these were actual physical rivers. They weren't the only rivers that existed then, but they were actual rivers. And rivers are necessary for physical life. The fruitful grounds around rivers and their streams make it possible to grow food. The waters of the rivers provide drink. They're both necessary for physical life. So God has made it so that Adam and Eve could, from the garden, spread out over all the earth and literally fill the earth with their offspring. God provided what they would need for physical life. But even more, what we see is a picture of the spiritual life that comes only from God. And this river theme carries through the Bible as a symbol for spiritual life. The prophet Zechariah uses this to picture the end of time, when God will finally fulfill his purpose. We read in Zechariah 14, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. This is really the same thing Ezekiel sees in his vision of the final and ultimate temple. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel says that he brought me back to the door of a temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of a temple toward the east, from a temple face east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of a temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of a north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits that led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Eneglaim will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. And on the banks... On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And this temple that Ezekiel sees in the final vision in his book is, of course, Christ. John, in his vision of Revelation, he sees the church in glory pictured as the new Jerusalem. It comes out of heaven, adorned in gold, and this is what he says. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of a city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see here that Zechariah, Ezekiel, and John all saw the same thing. We see the endless day imagery. We see the temple imagery in Ezekiel. There is no temple here from where the river flows, but the river that waters the trees of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb, who is the true temple. This is picking up on the theme of the rivers as God originally created the world. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The rivers flow here from the Holy of Holies. They flowed out of the garden from the presence of God. And until that consummation of God's design in the new heaven and the new earth that Zechariah and Ezekiel and John all see, God provides this spiritual life through the true temple who is Christ. Christ, who said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And for those who do drink this water that Christ offers, they become part of the true temple of God, and from them flows the river that brings life. As we read in John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, this same river, this river being pictured here in the Garden of Eden, this river still flows from God. And as the church, it now flows through us. And it is still to reach the four corners of the earth, to the end of the earth as we carried our commission. But we need to remember that the source of this life-giving power is God and him alone. You know, the prophet Jeremiah a few times actually correlates God himself with the living waters. In Jeremiah 2, God says to the prophet, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Later, he says, A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, Yahweh, the fountain of living water. Notice, from the beginning, in the place of a sanctuary was the fountain of living water. That's here in the garden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So what are these four rivers? The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. All right, the first river is the Pishon. And the fact that this river, and as we'll see, the Gihon River, we're told flowed in the past tense, while we'll see the Tigris flows in the present tense, is not translation, that's interpretation. The, the verb forms the same in both cases. However, the verb used is different. The verb, in this case, is a word that means to encircle or to surround. When we get to the Tigris, it's just the verb literally to go. The Tigris just goes east of Assyria. Now, why is any of this important? Well, because now that we're looking at this river, this first river, the Pishon River, nobody knows where it is. There are some guesses, but those are really based on guesses as to where Havilah may have been, because nobody knows where that was either. Many believe it was somewhere southeast of what would become Israel in the desert, okay? 
Here's what we do know. This river flowing from the garden circles a land that was rich in gold, bdellium, and onyx stone. Precious metals, valuable stones, along with whatever this bdellium stuff is. And again, there's an issue here because no one's quite sure what the Bible's describing. The Hebrew word that's translated as bdellium here is a word used only twice in the Bible. Here, where we're told that it existed in this place, and then one other time to describe the appearance of the manna God provides from heaven. Now, the majority of people just believe this is what modern-day bdellium is. Bdellium is a resin that comes from a tree similar to a balsam tree, and it actually has really good health benefits. It's actually really good for low cholesterol. But the tie-in here is that the manna God provides for life, which as we saw last week, it's an indication of God's presence, remember, it's compared to this, which is made possible by this river of living water flowing from the presence of God. What we see is that this river of life allows for the growing of trees that are good for food. We also see this land is encircled by this life-giving water, and in it there are gold and precious stones. And gold and precious stones are very often in the Bible used as an indication of God's presence. We've already considered. When God curses Satan for his sin through the prophet Ezekiel, we read this. He said, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you wore. So in the garden, this, this guardian cherub, this special guardian cherub was covered in gold and all these precious stones, including onyx. This is exactly what the high priest the high priest who alone could enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle later the temple, this is what he would be adorned in. Read in Exodus 28. God says you shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work in the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, its span its length and its span of breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. There should be set in gold filigree. There should be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They should be like signets, each engraved with its name from the twelve tribes. So here are the high priest, representing all of Israel, representing all of the twelve tribes. They all came in with him. He was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. He was allowed to return to the garden and to God's presence once a year. That's why I said his garb represented man in his original state in the garden. But onyx had a special meaning beyond being just one of its 12 stones in the breastpiece of the high priest. The shoulder pieces that attached that to the high priest were made of onyx, and they too were a representation of all of Israel. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of the names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones of the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord and as two shoulders for remembrance. So gold and onyx here 
are used to represent the original creation and the life that flowed freely from God that was supposed to expand over all the earth. Israel, as a people called to obey where Adam failed, were represented by the gold and the precious stones before God. And of course, the idea of gold and precious stones being in God's presence carries all the way through the Bible, all the way to the last book in Revelation, where John sees the vision of heaven, and it begins with this. He says, At once I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. This is the church, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And John's vision, of course, ends with that revealing of a new Jerusalem, which also represents the church, where we read, Then came one of the seven angels with his seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as the width. We all seeing the carry over here from, from the high priest here? As he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, whatever that is, the eleven jacinths, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. This is the church in glory. This is all symbolic, but this is the church in glory. We are in the very presence of God. And this part here, of course, leads right into what we just considered a few minutes ago, where God and the Lamb are going to be the temple, and the place from the river of life will flow forever. Do we see how these ideas carry throughout? I just want us to see that, that what God established at the very, very beginning is just the point of the consummation of his plan, where all of this is going to be perfected and made even better. I want us to see that we're Israel, and the priesthood, and the promised land, and the temple, were meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden and the original creation. They were also pointers forward, even for Israel, to the new heaven and new earth, to the true temple that is Jesus Christ and his people, and something better than Eden. That's what we're seeing begin here. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. So we have the Pishon, then we have the Gihon. This flowed around, same word, encircled or surrounded the whole land of Cush. Now, we know where Cush was. Cush was in northeast Africa, just below Egypt, about mostly where modern-day Sudan is. So this leads many to believe that what Moses is describing here is actually the Nile River. But of course, the original audience of Genesis would have known what the Nile River was. So Moses would have just said, the Nile, or I would think at least explained that this river known as the Gihon now is the Nile. 
This is why we spent some time talking about how no one's 100% sure of the locations of some of these places. The same is true with this river. This has led many to say, well, then this account in Genesis can't be literal history. If it were, we'd know where these lands were. And these rivers would still be evident. There'd be somewhere out there in the Middle East where these four rivers have the same source. And they would have the same source of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And when we read of those rivers, we read simply, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Tigris does flow east of what was Assyria. And Moses knew the audience would need no explanation of the Euphrates. He just says, oh, one of the four was the Euphrates. He knew there would be enough for Israel to know what he's talking about. So the question is, what's going on here? Are these made-up rivers? Moses just making up names? Is this all a fiction? No. There was a literal, physical place where one river became four and flowed down on either side of Assyria, into Africa, into some other place, perhaps the Arabian wilderness. So the question is, why aren't there four rivers today that share a source in some physical location that flow to all these places? Right? Rivers don't just move. You can't pick up a river and change its source. You can't just change its path. Not to mention, well, the Tigris and the Euphrates both end of the Persian Gulf. They don't share a common source today. I mean, it would take something huge, something world-changing to alter geography and remove two rivers, permanently alter the flow of two others. And that's what happened. Remember, he's describing how things were before the flood. Remember, worldwide flood, rivers weren't flowing. The world was covered in water. We'll see the waters didn't just come from the sky at the flood. The fountains of the deep, were told, opened up. Water was gushing out of the earth. Of course, things like rivers were going to be changed after something like that. Plus, well, I'm only speculating here. I can see how God would want to alter the geography of his rivers so that the location of the garden couldn't be found. Right? If it was Adam and Eve out, he guards the entrance. After the flood, he tells Noah to fulfill the mandate by multiplying and filling the earth. And if Noah had a single place to go, well, that might just be way too tempting for mankind if the garden could be found. It might be very tempting to think, hey, if we all got together and went to this one place, we could get back into God's presence. Maybe they wouldn't spread out over all the earth then. Maybe they'd try and go to one place and get into God's presence. Oh, that's right. That's what they did at Babel, right? speculation. But what would all this river business mean to the original readers of Genesis is the question. Why is this included here? Well, think about where they were. They were somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. So they were somewhere between being saved through water and now having to go inherit the land by passing through water. Remember, God parted the Red Sea to save his people. He's going to, future to them here, dry up the Jordan and let them enter into his rest in the promised land. And for Israel to hear that God always goes before his people to prepare the place they're to go to, to carry out his will, I think that would be a comfort to them. This is what Moses is trying to tell them. God had already promised them he was going to drive out the inhabitants of the land if they would obey him. God has already told them, I promise you, your crops are going to be plentiful. You're never going to run out of food if you obey me. He promised them, I'm preparing a place for you to live. But he wasn't just preparing a place for them to live physically. Moses is telling Israel, God is preparing a place for you to live spiritually. He's going to drive out the inhabitants of the land along with their gods so that Israel would be tempted to worship them. He was going to provide for them so they would need to worry about the physical so they could focus on the spiritual life they were really called to. But even more than that, Moses is showing them these life-giving waters flow from the very presence of God. And at this point, they already had the tabernacle. 
The Holy of Holies was already with them. This would have been a great comfort to Israel because they had it with them. They had the presence of God, the presence of the life-giving God going with them. They had a physical place to come and worship God already. And for us, we need to see this theme of life-giving water carried through the Bible, not just from Genesis to Revelation, but into our own lives, into our own ministries. Think about what Christ said to Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This isn't talking about baptism. As we'll learn later in chapter 7, which we saw earlier tonight, the water is the Spirit. And that life that the Spirit works in us is supposed to flow out from us. The life that the Spirit gives to us should multiply through us, like the river multiplied in the garden, because we have the presence of God within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as we were talking about earlier. And the life-giving water that flows into us should, not, should now flow to the four corners of the earth. That is what the church, which is the Holy of Holies in this age, that's what we're here to do, to bring this life to the whole world, and God will go before us and prepare the way for this life to spread. The only question is whether or not we're going to obey him. Adam didn't. Noah didn't. Mankind didn't at Babel. Israel didn't. What are we going to choose? So, these are the four rivers. Hopefully, I just wanted to show us how this theme carries through the Bible and how important it is. Now, we're done early tonight. So, a little bonus material for you tonight. I'm going to give you my theory on where the Garden of Eden was. Speculation, Bible doesn't say this. I think the Garden of Eden was on Mount Hermon in Bashan. I'm going to take you through this. First, we're going to see when we get to Genesis 6, when the sons of God, you know, procreate with the women. Um, most ancient Near Eastern myths have a version of that story. And almost all of them have these heavenly beings coming down from the meeting place of the Divine Council down Mount Hermon. Og, king of Bashan, is said to be a Rephaim, or a giant, which was the results of the fallen angels mating with humans at the foot of Mount Bashan. Psalm 68 says this, Psalm 68, 15 to 17. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Do you see what he's saying here? Mount Bashan, the original place of God's presence where the garden was, is now looking at the Temple Mount where God and his angels and his holy council meet. That is now the place where heaven meets earth. And notice it says Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Because if you follow through the meeting place of God with man, it is always on a mountain. So God was on Bashan. God met with Israel on Sinai and now was in the temple. Now, Mount, uh, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the area. It is nine, over 9,200 feet. Compared to that, the Mount of Olives is nothing. It's like 2,900 feet. The Temple Mount was less than 2,500 feet. We get this mention of this high mountain a few times in the Bible and at very significant points. Isaiah mentions this high mountain in the final judgment. 
Isaiah 40, 9 through 10 says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his, Lord is with, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. That's the first time we hear of his high mountain. The second time is at the end of the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel's final vision, where we just saw includes the temple. Where Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 40, verse 2, In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. And it's important to note here, the other times Israel, uh, that Ezekiel has these visions and God carries him to Jerusalem, he carries him to the Temple Mount. He says that. He says he's brought to the Temple Mount. Here he's brought to a very high mountain. The next time we hear about a high mountain is at Christ's temptations. In Matthew 4. We read that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is a very similar description to a lot of ancient Near East mythology about the meeting place of a divine council where they see all the world to help God rule over it, which in a lot of that literature is Mount Hermon. At the transfiguration, we hear about it again. What happens? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Do you know where that happens? Caesarea Philippi. You know where that was in the first century? It was in Bashan, at the foot of Mount Hermon. And then, the very next thing that happens is the transfiguration. And we're told that, in both Matthew and Mark, that they go up onto a high mountain, and Elijah and Moses are there, and the glory of God comes shining through Christ. This is the Mount of Assembly where the council meets. The last mention of it is in Revelation 21 that we saw tonight. All what we read tonight about John's vision of a new Jerusalem and the times of the garden, all of this happens, John says, on a high mountain. And that's where he sees heaven come to earth. So these references throughout, and the tie-ins with this high mountain in a lot of ancient Near Eastern mythology to Mount Hermon, that's why I speculate that. There you go. Bonus for you.